Our general session this evening is on the Holy Spirit and evangelism. And speaking will be Father Richard Ballou. Father Richard, as I've said, is our host pastor here from St. Athanasius Orthodox Church in Santa Barbara. And uh, he also serves as the administrator of St. Athanasius College and Academy. So I bring to you my good friend and compatriot, Father Richard Ballou. Thank you very much. The subject this evening, as announced, is the Holy Spirit and evangelism. And it is quite appropriate to speak of the Holy Spirit in this way because the prophet Joel foretold that he would be poured out on all flesh. That's found in Acts 2.17 and Joel 2.28. And therefore all peoples are the object of his work and endeavor. Now, in pursuing this subject, I would like to as well draw your attention to Revelation 22:17, a very interesting scripture, and I quote, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come, and whoever wills, let him take the water of life freely. And you will notice in this scripture that everyone, all peoples, are invited to come. And no one is forced because it says, whoever wills or whoever is willing, let him come. And he is invited to take the water of life freely. But the points that I want to bring to your attention is who is doing the inviting? Because this is a scripture that you might need to use sometime in talking with folks who eliminate or leave out the church from that invitation because it says, and the Spirit and the bride say come. And the Spirit, of course, is the Holy Spirit. Who is the bride? The church. And therefore, any invitation to come to the waters to drink is an invitation both of the Holy Spirit and the church, not the Holy Spirit without the church. Please keep that in mind because both the Holy Spirit and the church are involved together in evangelism. And we will consider this evening first the Holy Spirit's work of evangelism in the world in general, then more specifically where I believe North America is in all this, and then finally a few few suggestions of what the church might do in its attempt to evangelize North America. Now it is, I believe, a fact of the gospel that the first condition of salvation is enlightenment. In other words, before a person can be saved, he or she must be enlightened by the Holy Spirit. The world of people outside Christ are in the darkness of spiritual ignorance. And so the question might be asked, therefore, where is the world in the dark? Where are they, so to speak, uh, sucking wind? Well, let me suggest at least three areas of darkness which prevent people from knowing God and coming into the church. 
The first area of darkness I would like to emphasize briefly is what might be called theological darkness. This is, I believe, fundamentally an ignorance of Christology, i.e., the doctrine of Christ. When I hear someone poo-pooing doctrine, saying, oh, doctrine isn't important, it's not important what you believe, only that you're sincere. And when I hear that, within myself I go, hmm. What does the Scripture have to say? What do the apostles, what do the heavyweights have to say about that kind of an attitude? Well, listen to the, no less than the Apostle John, St. John the Evangelist. Quote, second epistle, verse 9 and following. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. Rather strong, wouldn't you say? He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. Rather strong, I would say. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Yes, that is quite startling. 2 John 9, 10, and 11. For those who say it doesn't matter what you believe. That's the second letter, the second epistle of John. Then in 2 Corinthians eleven four, the apostle Paul, another heavyweight. There are a lot of people in North America, or in, in the world for that matter, who say, I believe in Jesus. Of course I believe in Jesus Christ. But the question is, which one? In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul says, For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. You see, there is such a thing, beloved, as another Jesus. There is also such a thing as another spirit, another Holy Spirit. Just because someone says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, doesn't necessarily mean he's got the right one. And just because someone says, I believe in Jesus Christ, does not mean that that person necessarily has the right Jesus, because the world is loaded with Jesuses. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, the Apostle Paul says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But if we, listen to this, but if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. 
He repeats it just to make sure we get the point. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. We're not playing games here, the apostle says in so many words. We mean business. It's important what you believe about Jesus Christ. In 2 Peter, another heavyweight, the Apostle Peter himself, in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2 warns us concerning those who bring another Jesus. He says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways. You wonder, why do so many people follow these stupid Gospels? I don't know. It's a good question. They do. And it says, Because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. So there is a theological darkness that needs to be brought to light by the Holy Spirit, or more particularly, a Christological. Then, secondly, a second area of darkness that needs to be enlightened is what we might call moral darkness. This is, I believe, fundamentally an ignorance of God's righteousness in Christ. We read, for example, concerning Israel in Romans chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, For they, being ignorant, they being what? Being ignorant of God's righteousness, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Our righteousness is grounded in Jesus Christ our Lord. But there is ignorance of this in the world today. And the Apostle Paul does not paint a very nice picture of the moral condition of the world in the first chapter of Romans when he says, among other things, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, their hearts were darkened. Ignorance came in because they rejected God and His righteousness. Verse 26 as well says, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. And then verses 28 through 31, he concludes by saying, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And then he lists all these things. Unrighteousness, being filled with all unrighteousness. And then he lists gives a long list of unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, and so on. A long list of things there, of moral darkness. So that's an area that needs to be illuminated by the Holy Spirit and the church. <clears throat> a third area, I believe, that needs to be illuminated by the Holy Spirit and the church, in which, in which the Holy Spirit is working, is what I would like to call liturgical darkness. And this, I believe, is fundamentally an ignorance of how to worship and how to pray. In John, the fourth chapter, we find that when our Lord is talking with St. Fotini, the woman at the well, 
In that context, he says in uh, John 4, 22 through 24, you worship what you do not know. See, do not know, ignorance. Everyone worships, it would seem, something. Man is made to worship, and we are made to worship something, and everybody, it would seem, worships something. But here, the Lord is addressing some ignorance concerning worship. And he says, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. And then in Romans 8 and verse 26, concerning prayer and our ignorance of how to pray, we find that the Holy Spirit, speaking in St. Paul, in Romans uh, 8, 26, book of Romans, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And so it would seem that the Holy Spirit wants to illuminate, enlighten man concerning how to pray. So I would suggest then at least these three areas of darkness, ignorance of Christology, ignorance of God's righteousness, and ignorance of how to worship and how to pray. Now, the next question, what is the Holy Spirit doing to enlighten this darkness? Let's turn to John, the 16th chapter. <clears throat> Beginning with verse 7, our Lord says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper or the Comforter will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And then it says, When he has come, he will, and then he, he mentions three things he will do when he comes. That is, at Pentecost, three things he would do. Convict the world, and then in verse 13, he will guide us into all the truth, and in verse 14, he will glorify me. Now notice the word convict. This word may be translated in several different ways. It means, besides convict, it means convince, expose, correct, reprove, bring to light, set forth, Demonstrate, prove, point out. In other words, to summarize all that up, that's enlightenment. And this enlightenment is designed, I believe, by the Holy Spirit to dispel the problems surrounding these three areas that I mentioned. He says, first of all, of sin, convict the world of sin, and then in verse 9 he says, of sin, because they do not believe in me. See, that's Christology. They do not believe in me. Who's me? That's Christ, Christology, the doctrine of Christ. They do not believe. And then in verse 10, of righteousness, he says, Because I go to my Father and you see me no more. And there were some of the Jews were, were accusing Jesus of being a sinner. And he says, when I go to the Father, you'll, be, you'll know for sure I'm not a sinner because no sinner would be received into heaven by the Father to his right hand. And he convicts the world of righteousness. That is, God's righteousness in Christ. So he, he is in this world since Pentecost to bring to light the ignorance concerning and surrounding righteousness. And then thirdly, he says, of judgment. 
because the ruler of this world is judged. He came at Pentecost to convince the world that there is a coming judgment and that the ruler of this world has already been judged and cast out, and along with all of several things surrounding him which are mentioned in the Holy Sacrament of Baptism under the renunciation of Satan and the profession of faith. And in this renunciation the priest says to the catechumen, Do you renounce Satan and all his works and all his worship and all his angels and all his pride? In that list is all his worship. Now let me tell you something. I believe very sincerely and very strongly, and that is how in the world can we get ready for the coming judgment apart from liturgics, apart from worship and prayer, in other words. In the litany of the offertory, which we prayed this morning in the Divine Liturgy, one of the litany says, one of the statements here of prayer, for a Christian end to our life painless, blameless, and peaceful, and for a what? A good defense before the dread, dread, the dread, the awesome judgment seat of Christ. Now if, the, if this future judgment is going to take place at the throne of God, does it not behoove us to get acquainted with that throne? And where do we get acquainted with the throne of God? But in the liturgical life of the church, where we learn how to worship and how to pray. So it seems to me that the Lord sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to illuminate these three areas that I have brought to your attention, and to guide us into all the truth, and to glorify His Son, Jesus Christ. But which Christ does He glorify? The true one, the Orthodox Christ, we believe. And therefore I believe the Holy Spirit is making Christology, righteousness, and worship to be critical issues in evangelism. And the Holy Spirit is, I believe, enlightening North America and the darkness of pluralism in these three mentioned areas. So where is North America in all this? Where is North America theologically, or more particularly Christologically? Where is it? It seems to me, in my abbreviated experience with it, that the emphasis has been on, speaking Christologically in North America, that the emphasis in past number, in, the, in, in, in oh, 100, 200 years back, has been on what Jesus did, but very little on who He is. The most important question in all history is, who is Jesus Christ? North America, I believe, has heard what Jesus did, that He died on the cross. But the essential question is, who died on the cross? That's to me the essential question. Who died on the cross? You say, you ask people, do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Well, what did He do for you? Well, He died on the cross for me. But then you ask them the question, who died on the cross? start scratching their heads, because I believe you will find out there that 
the average person thinks that a man did. That a man shed his blood. Well, that's partially true. But that does not answer the question. Who died on the cross? In Acts chapter 20, when the Apostle Paul warned the Ephesian presbyters about those who would come in among the flock and, just, and try to rip them off, he said, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has made you bishops, overseers, to shepherd the church of God. To do what? To shepherd the church of God. Then it says, which he purchased with his own blood. Who died on the cross? God died on the cross. And frankly, I believe that North America perhaps is sick and tired of hearing about Jesus dying on the cross without really knowing who it was that died. Because they think, well, this poor weak man just died on the cross for our sins. Uh-uh. That was God that died on the cross. He did not die in his divine nature, but he died in his human nature, but it was God who died. The Holy Spirit's theology is first and foremost incarnational. About ten years ago, some of our friends were accusing us of teaching incarnational theology. Imagine that. Now, frankly, I had never even heard of the terminology. And we said, now, wait a minute. Are we teaching incarnational? Ooh, that must be some heresy. We're teaching incarnational theology. And uh, we got to looking at it real closely and, and digging into what, what they mean, incarnational theology. And we heard what they were accusing us of. And we said, and we accepted the accusation. <laughs> we realized, yeah, that's what we're teaching, incarnational theology, for crying out loud. Imagine that. The gospel begins in the womb of Mary, not on the cross. The reason people do not know who died on the cross in North America because they do not know who was in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And therefore, her name is so critical here because her name is Mother of God, Theotokos, Mother of God. Who was in her womb? God was in her womb. Therefore, who died on the cross? You see the connection? So if you start your gospel with a cross, you, you are immediately faced with a problem. You don't know who's, who's on it. If that was God in her womb, assuming human flesh, then that was God dying on the cross in his flesh for the sins of men, and I could listen to that forever. I never tire of hearing that, but I get worn out hearing about Jesus dying on the cross, frankly, unless that Jesus is God who died on the cross. But remember, there are all kinds of Jesuses out there, friends. Now, I don't want to get too wound out on this. Where is North America morally? That is, in relation to righteousness. America's morality is no secret, it seems to me, because it has become one of situation ethics. 
In the mid-60s, this philosophy took the country by storm. A man by the name of Joseph Fletcher in the mid-60s wrote this book called Situation Ethics. And he did not dream this up by himself, but he was a, he was a theologian along with other theologians both in Europe and America. In this book, he also names other representative theologians both in Europe and America who taught situation ethics. In Europe, evil, uh, evil, excuse me, Emil. <laughs> Emil Brunner, Karl Barth, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Niels, S-O-E, how you pronounce that, and Rudolf Bultmann. In America, H.R. Niebuhr, Joseph Sittler, James Gustafson, Paul Lehman, Garden Kaufman, and Charles West. These are all theologians. And they brought situation ethics to North America. And situation ethics is rooted in a secular humanistic philosophy known as nominalism. Don't have time to talk about nominalism, but that's the philosophy, the false philosophy it's grounded in. It's a philosophy that originated during the Middle Ages and teaches that words do not, do not correspond to reality but that rather words are only a convenient way of expressing, expressing thought. And they built their system off that, that philosophy, and they admit that's where, that that's what they're grounded in. Joseph Fletcher readily confesses that situation ethics is rooted in nominalism. He writes, quote, The medieval realist nominalist debate is by no means merely archaic or an outworn argument. Everything hangs on it. The whole mindset of the modern man, our mindset, is on the nominalist side. That is true in North America. We've got to change that. Now, what's the main point of situation ethics? It is this. It says that the law of love is the only law that governs all decision-making. That's what it teaches as the main point. The law of love is the only law that governs all decision-making. The Holy Spirit's morality, on the other hand, is the righteousness of God which basically is keeping the commandments of Christ. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, and I quote, If you love me, keep my commandments. He did not say, If you love me, decide to do anything you please. If you love me, live however you please. Make your decision based on that love. He didn't say that. He said, If you love me, keep my commandments. Love is grounded in Christ's commandments. And apart from those commandments and the keeping of them, there is no love. Now, where is North America liturgically? It seems to me that perhaps two words best summarize the answer to this question. Ignorance and non-existence. Now, I don't mean by that that there aren't liturgical churches. But I'm not talking about just a go-to-Sunday go church, go-to-church-on-Sunday go to program only. The country is truly bankrupt liturgically, it seems to me. When we talk about liturgical life, we're talking about a life that encompasses all of life, all of it, all the way from the cradle to the grave, and into the kingdom of God, an all-encompassing liturgical life. 
The Holy Spirit has already developed such a liturgical lifestyle. It is that of our Holy Orthodox Church. And in this regard we have, I believe, an unprecedented opportunity to fill the void and vacuum of this liturgical ignorance and non-existence. Now, we began by saying that the world is in the dark, both theologically, morally, and liturgically. And this is no less true in North America. We also emphasize that the Holy Spirit is enlightening the country in these areas of darkness. If this is true, then how can we cooperate with the Holy Spirit to bring this enlightenment to fruition? Let me suggest a few things, if I may. In the first place, we can give Americans the answer to the question, Who is Jesus Christ? In this way, they will know who died on the cross and rose again and thus come to fullness of faith in the church. Now, how can we do this? Well, I believe that one of the best ways in the whole world to do this is that we as Orthodox Christians need to be equipped with the contents of the Nicene Creed and how to communicate that content. You know what the Nicene Creed is, among other things? It is the perfect statement of religion. It is the perfect summation of the Bible. If you were to take all the books of the Bible and you were to summarize them all, you would come up with the Nicene Creed because that's what the fathers did. It summarizes perfectly, in the most perfect manner, the teaching of Holy Scripture. And North America needs to understand the contents of the Nicene Creed. That's what brought us to Holy Orthodoxy. We're talking, I'm talking from experience. The very first thing we discovered on the road to Orthodoxy, one of the very first things was this creed. Now, do you know that approximately 60% of this creed is Christological? However, before it describes what Christ did, it explains who He is. Consider it. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and then it says, and in one Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean, one Lord Jesus Christ? That means that He too is the one God. It says, I believe in one God. Well, the Father is not, not the only one who is the one God. The Son is also the one God, and so is the Holy Spirit. But it says, in one Lord Jesus Christ, and Lord is just another is a synonym for God and in one Lord or one God, Jesus Christ. Now, how do you explain that then? Well, he goes on to explain who he is, you see. I mean, the, the, the creed does. The Son of God. All right, now you ask the average Amer North American, uh, who is the Son of God? And I think you'll get this answer. Yes, I believe in the Son of God, but uh, they think that he's the Son of God from, the, from his birth in Mary. In other words, they think that Christmas makes him the Son of God. Uh-uh. Christmas does not make Jesus Christ the Son of God. What makes Jesus Christ the Son of God is His, well, He goes on to say. I don't need to say it. says it right here. He's called the only begotten. Begotten of the Father before all worlds. 
And you will find that the eternal birth of the Son from the Father is totally ignored in Christology and theology in North America. Almost. Light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. He's not a creature. He's of one essence with the Father, by whom all things were made. Now, that is a mouthful there. I mean, those were, those, this, this is very scientific language, very carefully worded language, very specific language, and it's critical language, and it is language that explains who Jesus Christ is before it says what he did. It's only after that that it says he came down from heaven, was incarnated of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man, you see. In other words, it talks about what he, what he did after it says who he is. And what I'm simply saying is, is that we need to know both of those, who he is and what he did. But in North America, the whole emphasis starts at the cross, it would seem. And every now and then they even throw in the resurrection for good measure. And, uh, but still, you're not, you don't know who it is that died or who rose. No wonder nobody gets excited about the, his death and resurrection anymore because they don't really know who it was that died and who rose again. Well, it just happened to be God that did. Is that something to get enthusiastic about? Are you enthusiastic about that? If you're not, you're dead. Secondly, we can show Americans, so then we need, to, we need to teach the contents of this creed. Secondly, we can show Americans, by example, the way of righteousness. Okay. Okay. We need to show Americans, by example, the way of righteousness. We can, by the grace of God, help America overcome the falsehood of situation ethics. Now, you believe you me, this, this, this thing, this heresy of situation ethics has decimated North America. I have, I have never seen such a downhill slide since the mid-60s as I have, right? I mean, since about the mid-60s, this baby is going down fast. Well, that's all right. The only issue is just love. Just love everybody. And then do whatever you want to do. Baloney. Those people that believe that need to come to Vespers. And Matins. Grant, O Lord, to keep us this evening without sin. Doesn't say with sin. Blessed are you, O Lord, God of our fathers, and praised and glorified is your name, and so forth. You're well acquainted with that. And then it says, Blessed are you, O Holy One, enlighten me with your commandments. That's the Father. And then, then uh, no, excuse me, first of all, it says, Blessed are you, O Sovereign Lord, let me understand. Wait a minute, I'm back up. Uh, Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your commandments, the Father. Blessed are you, O Sovereign Lord, let me understand your commandments, the Son. And blessed are you, O Holy One, enlighten me with your commandments, the Holy Spirit. In other words, what is at issue here? It is being enlightened with the commandments of God through Jesus Christ and keeping those commandments. That's, that's a bedrock issue in the Christian life. 
Where may the best expression of His commandments be found? Well, I think it's very simple, in the Sermon on the Mount, which everybody loves to hear, but nobody wants to do. Oh, I just love the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor, poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, are we poor in spirit? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What do we mourn? We mourn over our sins and everybody else's? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, and so forth and so on. And all the way through here, his instructions on what he wants us as his church to do in relation to righteousness. And then he sums it, sort of sums it up by saying, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Notice it doesn't say, interestingly, seek first the kingdom of God and his love, though love is very important. It says seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness because that's the foundation of love. We need to, by the grace of Christ, the best we can, live out this sermon. And then thirdly, we can, by God's grace, introduce Americans to the rich liturgical life of our church. As much as anything else, evangelism is bringing people to active participation in liturgical worship and prayer. Again, back to John 4, which I read a few minutes ago. And then also Acts chapter 17, John 4, the Father seeks such to worship Him in spirit and in truth. He's seeking worshipers. And in Acts chapter 17, St. Paul went to Athens, and uh, he made that also an issue there, this issue of worship. He was talking to these philosophers, and he hit them with this thing of worship. And he says in Acts 17, for example, 26 and 27, or 25, Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their appointed times, pre-appointed times, and the boundaries of their habitation. For what purpose? So that they should seek the Lord, that is, i.e., in worship. That they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. Father Schmemann has outlined, I think very well, maybe it's not the only way to outline the Orthodox liturgical life, but he has outlined it, which I like very well, in his book, Liturgy and Life, and I would like just to, to read his summary outline of what he calls the liturgia of the church. And by the way, it's very interesting that as you study this word in the New Testament, this word liturgia, liturge, liturgeo, sounds like what word in English? Liturgy. In other words, the life of liturgy, the liturgical life. And he outlines it this way. He calls it the liturgy of initiation, which, are the, which is the sacraments of baptism and holy chrism by which we are integrated into the church and become her members. The liturgy of initiation. Then there is the two, the divine liturgy or Eucharist, the very center of the whole life of the church, 
the sacrament of Christ's presence among us and of His communion with us. This sacrament is the essential sacrament of the Church, for nothing in the Church can be achieved without communion with Christ in the Eucharist. And then thirdly, he has the Liturgy of Time, and the daily cycle, the weekly cycle, and the yearly cycle of time. The daily cycle being built on the services of Vespers and Matins, and uh, so, so forth on through the church year, that wonderful liturgy of time. And he calls it those services by which the church sanctifies the time in which we live and act, transforming it into the time of our salvation. The whole world is caught in the, in the dead end of time. That is, all they're looking to is they're going to die, and then that's it. And death ends everything. No, in the church, we sanctify time, and we turn it in and make it life. The Scripture says, Redeem the time, because the days are evil. Well, this is we do it in this liturgy of time, among other things. And then number four, <clears throat> he has the, sac the liturgy of life. And these he calls the sacraments and services dealing with all details of our life, helping us to make it a Christian life, related to Christ, full of His Spirit, dedicated to His saving purpose. It includes the sacraments of healing, confession, holy oil, matrimony, various rites of prayer and blessing, and finally, the liturgy of Christian death. You see, this liturgical life in the church takes us all the way from the cradle to the grave into the kingdom of God. It meets every need of life. And this is a life that North America knows almost nothing about. And therefore, I believe that we have this unprecedented opportunity as Orthodox to bring Americans to this life. And I believe they will buy it, because as Father John says, they buy a good thing when they see it. But they've got to see it, see illumination. So that means then that we've got to be committed to this liturgical life. Is, is church just going to church on Sunday? I, I think not. I think that church encompasses all of life and all the liturgical life of the church. And that's why I said at the very beginning that I believe that North America is bankrupt liturgically. Well then, we have considered the Holy Spirit's work of evangelism in the world in general, then more specifically where I, where I believe North America is in all this. And finally, a few suggestions of what the church might do in its attempt to evangelize North America. Now, I don't know all of what the Holy Spirit's plan is, naturally. None of us do. But we have a lot of ways that we can go about, a lot of things that we've learned and can do. But whatever the Holy Spirit's plan may be to evangelize North America with the Orthodox faith, I hope and pray He will enlighten us regarding it and then grant us the privilege and honor to cooperate with Him in this venture. To the glory of Christ our God, together with His Father, who is without beginning, in His all holy, good, and life-giving Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Amen.